welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a reflection on the series that closed just a few weeks ago. I wanted an opportunity to listen back to really try and retain what I'd learned from these amazing guests. And we also have a few exciting announcements for you at the end. First, looking back, I'm really struck by the vastness of the different conversations that make up what we mean by the public conversation. It's such a joy to be able to be a bit nosy, actually, and dip into the world of documentaries or regenerative farming or what it takes to lead a Muslim civil society organization. I find it really good to be reminded about these other worlds, which I know nothing about, that have their own dramas and satisfactions and struggles and ethics and narratives going on. If I think back to the very first episode of the series with Paul Kingsnorth, he said his sacred value was nature, which is something that's come up um, quite a lot over the years. And we had a really wide-ranging and interesting conversation, but the impression that I was left with is just his really felt frustration, and I really felt for him, in how easy it is to misrepresent people when there's these issues that are very, very polarizing, like vaccines. I worry that even I partly did it, perhaps in my in my wrap-up. The issues are so complex and the feelings around them are so intense that it just it is really a big mess. You know, hearing him say it was so helpfully challenging that he can write an incredibly careful 5,000-word essay in which he is carefully, carefully unpacking the particularities of his position and worries. And still, he'll just get written off as an anti-vaxxer and put in a particular box and associated with a bunch of people he doesn't agree with and a bunch of issues, a bunch of positions that he doesn't hold. You know, that tendency, and I, I guess it comes from sort of cognitive shortcuts that we don't, we don't have enough room in our head for the entirety of each person, right? We barely do with the people that we actually know in our real lives. And so, when we're kind of surveying the landscape, we have to use these shortcuts, these kind of, oh, they're that, they're that, they think that, they probably agree with them, this, this constant sorting that we do, but that there's such dangers with those shortcuts and the patience to slow down a bit and listen to what someone's really saying um, is, is so, so important. And I really, I felt Paul's um, kind of personal hurt and frustration about his experiences in that and just learned a lot about um the some of the themes and the threads in in his perspective perspective um around vaccines I really enjoyed hearing about his conversion actually and the the windy path to that Satnam um I loved his sacred value of just like not being cool and trying to be balanced um and careful it was really really left me with this question about writing personally that um writing personally is so powerful and that his career has been a move from writing about issues to writing more about himself and now you know his editors are like there's not enough of you in this in this column um but also how exposed that exposed that leaves you and when I shared that episode on Twitter about the abuse he received the very first reply was someone saying basically stop moaning he doesn't get any abuse and I was really shocked and I thought, I know, I'm going to wade into this and went and searched for a few key terms and it, you don't have to dig very far to see 
sometimes not lying. He he really does get an enormous amount of abuse. Um, but the fact that uh, that was the very first response that I got, someone denying his experience of that um, was, you know, troubling and um, came up with various guests in the series, actually, with Prue as well and obviously with Paul, this sense that it can be... Morally, very coarsening, I think, if you let it, being in public and just dealing day to day with the the deluge of abuse. And one of the key kind of spiritual growth or moral and ethical questions for those people is, okay, where are you going to ground yourself? How are you going to deal with this? How do you avoid just becoming very thick-skinned and cynical and dismissive, um, but stay open-hearted? And I really did, you know, I think sometimes thinking deeply about that. I really enjoyed hearing about his Sikhism um, and his his commitment that you can't just say empire's evil, empire's brilliant, that there's always granularity, there's always particularity. Um, it's always more complicated than that in that slightly annoying Ben Goldacre phase, phrase. Um, but but um, that's the only way to truly inhabit the world, I think, having a tolerance for that. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking to Zara, Zara Mohammed, who's clearly going to run the world one day. Um, she, she, her sense that, you know, you have to start where people are, that you need to, she said, you need to respect people's traditions, customers and cultures, even if they don't mean your societal standards. Because if you really want anyone to change, um, they, they need to see you as someone that respects them and is willing to take people on the journey. And that seems like such a key thread that, People don't change their mind if they feel disrespected. People won't don't care what you think unless they think that you care. You know, that posture towards people is so fundamental in any conversation across difference, any attempt to persuade anyone, and yet it is so hard to do and to practice. And it came up as well in Sarah's, Sarah Langford's um her, her sacred value is work. Um, I really heard that kind of do something with your life call. Both her, um, both with farmers who she's spending a lot of time with now and with criminals um, in her previous career when she was a barrister, it came through with the same thing, really, this echo of treat people with dignity, treat people with empathy, understand that their stories are much more complicated than the two-dimensional stories that we tell and resist patronizing you know resist particularly demonizing them um because that's so so harmful in any attempt to to connect with someone and see someone as fully human or in the case of regenerative farming you know help them understand why they might need to change the way they're doing things speaking to dante his sacred value of family which he said at the beginning really came through everything he said you know his connection with his family, his connection with his black Pentecostalism, the disconnect he felt, therefore, when he was in a white reformed church, when he was baptized again. And now this kind of, what does it mean to raise children in a world where being African-American still feels dangerous um, in the US in particular, I think, but not definitely not uniquely. And I want, I want to keep having those conversations. I want to keep trying to listen deeply to try and be honest about where I am about you know part of his struggles have been with white Christians and that's one of the many labels that you could use for me I'm a, I'm a white Christian and staying in the tension you know I didn't really want to ask that <laughs> I don't 
I often just want to have these conversations very theoretically, you know, about language and issues and divisions that are out there. But making myself name the thing, <laughs> name the hard thing, um, is often um, scary but fruitful. And the more I do it, the more I realize my desire to kind of land what I think about all this, to go to join one of the teams, you know, the... Um, uh, the the war on woke guys that you know all identity politics is evil or the those who are saying it's only through fully understanding these identity issues that we can embed justice in our societies and actually these identities are really important and we need to this is a helpful frame through which we are thinking um that i need to give up on coming to a conclusion on that and again go back to particularity and um context and the relationships that we're actually in and the people that we actually know and how we treat each other how we listen to each other and the language that we use in those settings this desire to kind of universalize an approach to difference I think is probably tripping me up I won't generalize that um I love speaking to Rowan, Rowan Deacon, and her sacred value of this commitment to human connection. And it was sort of meta to talk to Rowan because um, so much of what she's doing in documentaries is exactly what I'm trying to do when I talk to people, this sense of keeping a posture of curiosity and listening. And I was particularly struck by how boundaried she is and how you have to be boundaried. Um, I'm less boundary than her because many of my guests end up friends and I am very fine with that. It's it's brought me some really interesting and very different from me friends. But I did, I did get that sense that there is a continuum that even though often she's dealing with really painful, difficult issues and I'm generally not, that it's a vulnerable position to put someone in, to self-reflect, to tell their story and um, there's power there. Jonathan Pajot, uh Again, this sense of crisis of meaning, which comes up a, up a lot, this sense that he and others in his world are tapping into a, such strong yearning for there to be meaning, for there to be forms of belonging, for a kind of re-enchanted world, for the hope that we could be part of a bigger story than ourselves. Um, and what really left, what he really left with me was this great analysis about those on the left tend to dehumanise people in time, that kind of older traditions... Um, older societies, um, less kind of progressive, developed, liberal in air quotes societies. If you're not if you're not from there, if you don't feel at home in them, then um, you're kind of somehow less than uh, everyone else. And that those on the right tend to dehumanise in space um, geographically. They're much more nervous of a geographic other of different races. Um, and Jonathan's commitment to resisting that and knowing where you have a tendency to dehumanise others and resisting it was um a really helpful call i think for all of us zing um who was so warm and lovely i was quite intimidated by her because she's just very very cool and she quickly made me feel at ease and um she reminded me that journalists actually often have these some of these bridge building skills and they're using them instru more instrumentally often but that there is something slightly magical in an ability of a journalist to find a connection point with almost anyone and to um, help them open up and listen to their stories and Zing clearly knows how to do that as much as any other and I hate the way this stuff sounds cheesy and simple when it's vitally important um, but sometimes it does but it doesn't mean it's not important 
And Pruleith, I was a bit nervous about this one, to be honest, because she was doing it on the fly in the States. And as you might have heard, the audio wasn't up to our usual standards. And at one point, uh, I asked her to stop tapping because she was sort of fiddling in a way that um, you might, might have heard then some tapping come through. And it did feel like trying to tell off the headmistress. Um, she's so self-assured um, that uh, my normal levels of assertiveness went right down, but uh, I managed it and she was very gracious. Um, I just loved how direct she is. I really did find her very, very refreshing. And it left me wondering how much is just temperament? And she says, you know, she's a fairly straightforward person. She's not very tortured. She has this, um, you know, just do attitude that her she shared with her son, Danny. You know, roll your sleeves up, get stuff done. How much of that is is just temperament? How much is generational? Because she was reminding me of my grandma, the matter-of-fact, slightly sardonic just get on with this stuff. And we have gained a huge amount, I think, in a change in an attitude to emotions and an ability to talk about trauma and to create space for vulnerability and our mental health struggles. And I, I in no way want to decry any of that. But I wonder if, do I mean something's been lost? Or do I just mean, is there, you know, is there is there a way of having both? Is there a way of holding space for our vulnerability and our woundedness and sometimes just pulling our socks up and cracking on and rolling up our sleeves and being a bit more pro? So there were some themes really coming through. Um, as I said, Jonathan's challenge about how do we tend to dehumanize people and who do we tend to dehumanize? The self-awareness to notice that in ourselves and not to tolerate it, I think is really important. So many people affirmed this thesis that just shouting at people, calling people names, dismissing them, pouring contempt on them, telling them they're wrong, doesn't work. It's a terrible tactic. It feels good. It feels, it's like slightly addictive, self-righteous rage. We feel like we're doing something to fix the problem and we have somewhere to challenge, to channel our big feelings, but it actively makes it work. What works is taking doing the, the hard thing, which is the commitment to staying in a conversation, to treating people with respect, to trying to understand where they're coming from. Um, and we can build those muscles, I think. Yeah, there's, again and again, this sense that there's stereotypes of people and the person that you perceive in their public persona is always, always radically more complicated and usually more vulnerable than the person you see in public. And... Um, that's hard to hold in our heads, but really important. And just this stuff about abuse, you know, Satnam and Paul and Prue in particular, it feels um, deeply troubling to me and um, I wish I knew how to fix it. So those are my reflections on our guests. And I... I wanted to say thank you to all of them for taking the time to talk to me. It is a privilege and it does feel like a spiritual practice for me. This is my tiny act of resistance against the way society is trying to form me to hate people more easily. I uh, There's a wonderful book called The Sabbath, Sabbath by Rabbi um, Heschel, Joshua Heschel. Anyway, um, that talks about Sabbath as an act of resistance. And I have come to believe that listening to people different from me is an act of resistance against the dehumanizing tides of our society. I want to um, push back in a tiny, tiny way against, against that polarizing tide. I want to be more like um, 
Jesus in the New Testament Bible bit coming here. But I think no matter what you believe about Jesus, this is something we can emulate in him. He, all over the, the Gospels, the person that Jesus goes to be with, the person Jesus is curious about, the person who he's asking questions of and seeking to care for is usually the biggest outcast, um, the lowest status, the most despised person in any room. I've come to see it like the, I don't know how many of you have watched Fleabag, but I've come to see it as like explicitly mischievous what he's doing. That He sometimes walks into a scene and then winks to camera and then goes to the tax collector uh, and then goes to the sort of collaborator with Empire and then goes to the woman who has a lifelong period and is bleeding all down her legs and then goes to the leper, you know, goes to the rich and despised, goes to the poor and despised, goes to the Samaritan who is despised for their race, goes to the woman at the well who is despised for her sexual choices. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, the most outsider person, but I want to have that mischievous wink to camera more in my life and not just hang out with my tribe, not just hang out with people who build up my ego by agreeing with me and make me feel comfortable because I fear if I do that, I will be very boring and have a very unadventurous life and won't grow. So that's my commitment. Um, I really valued the person listener who told me that she is in now, and she called it a sacred style, intentional friendship with someone who is a different generation and religion and race from them and how life-giving and sometimes tricky it is to be in that friendship. I just wanted to cheer. And I want to say thank you to the listener who wrote from Australia where they're working with government on large-scale global conflicts and how much listening to the sacred steadies them and reminds them what is possible on the small scale. These these kind of encouragements really do help. Do let me know um, what's going on in your life in this area and what you're thinking about and what, if any, small act of resistance you might be practising. We're going to take a break now um, over Christmas. Our next series will be out early next year and the first episode will be with a drum roll wonderful Irish journalist Sean O'Hagan and the person he has written, written a new book with, Nick Cave. That book is called Faith, Hope and Carnage. It's my book of 2022. Go and put it on your Christmas list if you are interested in creativity, if you're interested in grief, if you're interested in theology, if you're interested in two friends who don't agree on either religion and politics by the sound of it. Staying in a tender and loving conversation is a really beautiful book. I can't wait to share the conversation that we had with you. We all cried um, and it was really meaning and move, uh, meaning and movingful, <laughs> really moving and meaningful. And we're also excited that we're going to have our um, first sacred live event since before the pandemic. And we have a great guest lined up for that. We're just pinning down dates. And um, so we will be able to announce that uh, probably in the new year. So please do follow us on social media channels and stay in touch. Finally, as is traditional, if you are enjoying this and would like to support us in some way, please go now, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. Send an episode to a friend, introduce them, um, have a chat about it, and we'd love to hear how you get on. Until next year, I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and you've been listening to The Sacred. <laughs>